Good morning, church. It's a joy. Thank you. It's a joy to stand before you. I really wish there were two people in the room. The rest of you would have gone on your long bank holiday, so it would have been easier for me to preach. But no, the house is full, and it's, as the psalmist says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And we are glad to see you all here this morning. Like Topi said, my name is Sujit. And I've been coming to Reading Family Church for about five, six years now. I'm married to Shilpa and we have a son, Ivan. I have my mother-in-law visiting us as well, so it's really glad to have more family with us. So, this morning, I've chosen a very familiar passage, one that I think many of you would have heard in kids' church or in Sunday school, or maybe some of you even came to Lord by listening to that passage. It's a familiar passage that most preachers go to when they have a gospel to preach. And often it's simple stories like these parables that we often tend to move over and go to more serious doctrines. But it's in the simple stories that Jesus says that there's a lot of truth. Jesus often preached through his parables. And it's in these parables that we find a lot of truth and meaning. So the portion for today is taken from Luke chapter 15. And before that, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this opportunity to break bread with your people, your word. That is the bread of life. So Holy Spirit, I ask, Lord, that you come and illuminate our lives. For your word is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. I pray that you'll bring these stories alive, that we might learn from you and be wise. In Jesus' name, amen. I've titled the message, Where Are You? That could be a simple answer to that question. Well, I'm here. But Jesus often goes very deeper when he asks a question. And he leaves his, think, his listeners thinking deeply about what he's asking them. Luke chapter 15 begins with this verse. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So let's look at the context of this chapter. We have two sets, two groups of two. We have the tax collectors, they are also called as the publicans. So the publicans and the sinners on one side, and then we have the Pharisees and the scribes on the other. Who are these people? Now the tax collectors are people who collected taxes from the Jews on behalf of the Roman Empire. They were often known to charge more than they should and they made their living. Some of them we know made more than a living, like Zacchaeus. And the sinners who were... The sinners who were joined with these tax collectors were not ordinary sinners. They were those who consistently, persistently, deliberately transgressed the requirements of the law. And so these two groups of people were always found close to Jesus because they saw Jesus 
as a rabbi, someone who had a fresh message, not like the Pharisees and the scribes. So they were intrigued about his new message. But we also see the Pharisees and the scribes. They were also found near Jesus. They always hung around. But their postures were different. So Jesus here, he is trying to meet both these groups of people at their points of need. What was their condition? Jesus often showed the mirror to them. The, the word of God is the best mirror that we can always have because it always reflects the condition of the human heart. The tax collectors and the sinners were evil. They knew they had transgressed the law and they knew it. They knew it very well. On the other hand, the Pharisees and the scribes, they knew that they were keeping God's commands. They thought they were keeping all his commands. But they were evil and they don't knew it and they didn't knew it. Both these groups of people were found near Jesus. Jesus received both groups of people. We see that Jesus all, all often dined with the Pharisees. He also dined with the tax collectors and the sinners. And that's what infuriated the Pharisees. How could Jesus go and eat and drink with the Pharisees without requiring them to change their ways? So that was the condition of these two groups of people. One was evil and they didn't know it. The other was evil and they knew it. But what was the posture when they come to Jesus? Chapter 15, verse 1 says, The tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. The Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners. So they were complaining. The tax collectors and the sinners, they sought Jesus. While the Pharisees and the scribes, they watched him from a distance. They always watched if Jesus would do something that they could catch him uh, breaking the law. Would he heal on the Sabbath? Um, they always watched him, whereas the, Pharisees, whereas the tax collectors and the sinners, they sought him. They sought him with their hearts. It says they drew near to him, the tax collectors and the sinners, whereas the Pharisees, they kept their distance. They didn't want to be anywhere close to him. They kept the distance, but they watched him. What is our posture this morning? Are we happy to come to the church, hear the songs, enjoy the fellowship, and just walk away? Or do we really want to draw near to Jesus, to seek him, to hear him? So Jesus takes his chance to show the heart of God to these both groups of people. He tells them stories to sneak past their guarded hearts to show them the massive love of God for both the sinner and the saint, the tax collector, the rule breaker, and even those who kept the laws. After all, that was Jesus' sole mission on earth. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That was whole, the whole mission of Jesus. So here he sees both groups of people. He knew they both need his love and compassion. So let's look at the stories that Jesus said. The first, the lost sheep. And we all know the story, so I'm going to skip past that. But you know, a man had a hundred sheep. One of it got lost. The shepherd goes, looks for the sheep, finds it, returns it back to its fold. 
rejoices with his friends. What does it really say? Each sheep is valuable. Shepherds, for, for the shepherds, the sheep were their, probably the only source of livelihood. And they wouldn't leave their sheep. Each sheep has intrinsic value. Each sheep is whole in itself, but it is not complete until it is returned to the fold. Now we know sheep are dumb animals. They are ignorant. They are easily led astray. And so, you see sheep, they often go in search of pastures. The shepherd leads them out. But step by step, they often go astray. It doesn't take a whole leap. One fine morning, you don't get up and find yourself lost. But it's those little steps you take, a gradual displacement away from the house of God, away from His presence. And soon you find yourself lost, away from the Father's earshot. The Bible says, my sheep hear my voice. But here this lost sheep is far away from the, father's voice, from the, from the shepherd's voice. And he can't get back himself. So the shepherd goes in search of the sheep, leaves the rest. What a picture of God's compassion. He leaves the rest of the 99 out. It shows the shepherd's response, the urgency of the response. The rest of the 99 are okay in the relative comfort and security of the fold. But this one sheep must be found. There is rejoicing. If you look at the context, the Pharisees and the scribes, they complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They had no joy if one of them repented and came back. But Jesus was telling this to say, even if one sheep returns, there is joy. There is joy. He carries the sheep on its shoulders, not just warding it off back into the fold, but carries it on its shoulders. Shoulder to shoulder is something where we say when we are equal with one another, and carrying one sheep on, it, on the shoulders means he's equal just like the other sheep. Now the Pharisees would have been really feeling good hearing this. We are like the 99 sheep, we don't need to repent. It's that those tax collectors and the sinners, that one sheep that have gone astray. And they would have felt a bit good about that. But Jesus went on to the next story, the lost coin. What woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? That's the second story. Now here we see that there's a gradual decrease in the value. Earlier it was one sheep of a hundred, now it's one silver coin of a ten. And these are not ordinary coins. If I dropped a penny, you, you would think I'm stupid if I went and searched for the penny, leaving all that I have to do. In our day it might seem unthinkable, but these were not ordinary silver coins. Ten silver coins is usually an ornament worn by the, by the bride-to-be. The husband would have given that to the one he's going to marry until the day they are going to be married, to keep safe and to look after it. And on the day of her marriage, she would wear it as an ornament, either on her head or as a necklace. 
And so if she, meant, if she loses one, it meant that her marriage was possibly at stake. And so she would go looking for that lost coin. The coin did not go away by itself. The coin was lost in the house. It was dropped, misplaced. I don't know if any of you feel like that today. I've been dropped. I lost it. It wasn't my fault. It was him or it was her. It cannot clink or shine by itself. It cannot shout, hey, here am I, find me. It cannot hear the woman's voice. It needed the woman to diligently search until she found it. The coin, though lost, it did not lose its value. It was still a silver coin, but it lost its significance. It's not part of the ornament anymore. It means nothing. Its significance is lost. So the woman had to find it and restore it back. These two parables address the two groups of people. The tax collectors and the sinners would have easily identified with the lost sheep. This was a message of hope. We've sang this morning about songs of hope and how Jesus saves. They found this message of hope, that they are like the lost sheep and there's a shepherd that looks after them. A shepherd and a sheep was familiar for the hearers of this parable in those days because they were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures that talks about God as a shepherd and his children as sheep. So they would have easily identified with the sheep. But this would inf infuriate the Pharisees. They felt, how could Jesus talk about a story where the shepherd brings back the sheep or finds the lost coin and the tax collectors and the sinners, they are basically lost but they don't have anything to do about it. Jesus goes and dines with them without asking them to repent. But Jesus did have a message for them. But his message was not, straighten up your lives and keep the law. It wasn't shape up or ship out. He said, his message was, the kingdom of God is yours, even yours. You are included. Everyone's invited. Everyone's included. The parable of the lost coin, it was directed at the Pharisees, who like the coin, they don't know they're lost. In spite of all their obedience to the law and keeping the commandments, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, they are still lost. And all that they could do means nothing. There's really nothing they could do to get them found. They too need God's compassion and mercy to seek and to find them. And in both cases, there is rejoicing over that which is lost. Jesus still has a heart for the Pharisees and the scribes. He still loved them deeply. He still wanted that none of them should be lost. It shows that God's kingdom is accessible to all, the Pharisee and the publican, the scribe and the sinner. This was a message of hope to both groups of people. Now one would think Jesus made his point to both groups of people. There was a message for both groups of people, something for them to think about. But Jesus wasn't done. This was just the beginning of the end.
He then goes on to say another story. And actually, look at the first two stories. He said, what man of you having a hundred sheep? It starts with a question. Or what woman having ten silver coins? It starts with a question. The third story doesn't begin with a question. It says, a certain man had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now this would have been unthinkable in Jewish culture. Property inheritance only passed down at the death of the patriarch of the family. In other words, the younger son was telling the father, you are dead to me. I wish you were dead. And so he divided the property. It says, notice the words, he said, so he divided his property between them. He didn't call just the younger son and gave him his property. He divided between them. The older son was equally involved in that division of property, though he didn't ask for his share. And he would have received twice the share of the younger son, because that was the custom. The father did not refuse or negotiate with his son. You see, extravagant love often has to make extravagant allowances. God provides his property freely to all of us. He allows us to choose the path of life. As it began in the Garden of Eden, he allowed the first man and woman to choose between good and evil. He knew the outcome. But God's love compels him to give us free will to either obey him or reject him. And so the younger son, not long after he received his property, he went on to a faraway land. And we know the story. He spent all his possessions. Verse 14 says, And when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Thus began his downfall. He started with a demand, Father, give me my share. But when he had spent all, there was a severe famine. Notice there are two parts of his downfall. One is his own actions. He spent all his living, and then there arose a severe famine. That was not his doing. When we are outside God's rule and reign, we can be sure that there will be a downfall. Even things that are beyond our own control. So Jesus often uses exaggerations and extremes in his parables to draw the listener to the truth. So he said, it says, he sent him to, into his fields to feed swine. The, the person that he hired him himself to fed, asked him to feed swine. That was, that was his job. That was the lowest of the low that he could, do, he could go to. For the Jews, the swine were, were uh, animals that they, they can't be associated. They were impure animals. And here he found himself feeding swine. He longed even for the pods that the swine ate, but no one gave him anything. 
The younger son wanted to spend his inheritance in living his own way. And the disaster ultimately led to his absolute downfall. His decisions had consequences. We cannot run away from our decisions. We can be sure our decisions will have consequences. Sin is painful, even if at the beginning it feels good. And so what happens? That's the turning point. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, how often do we have to reach the end of, end of ourselves to really come to ourselves? Does it really need to be that severe? But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? It indicates he is probably aware that he's probably heard back at home. There's no famine. There's enough and plenty to eat. So how many of my servants have enough to spare? But here I am, I perish of hunger. So he doesn't wallow in his self-pity, but he makes a decision. We see in the next verse, he resolves in his heart. It says, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Look at the three eyes. I will arise, he says. He makes a decision and follows it with an action, but he resolves in his heart. He doesn't stay where he is. He shakes off the dirt and he says, I will arise. And there are three things that he makes up in his mind. And these three are three critical ingredients to sincere repentance. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He admits his wrongdoing. He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He acknowledges his condition. And, in, and then he says, make me like one of your hired servants. He asks for total mercy and surrender. It's very important when we confess, when we truly repent, we must admit our wrongdoing. Don't blame the devil for what you've done to yourself. Admit your own wrongdoing. Acknowledge your condition. We are unworthy before God. It's only by His mercy that we are restored. And ask for mercy. Mercy is free. And so he goes to his father. He has reserved, uh, he has rehearsed these dialogues, three sentences in his mind all along the journey and he makes his long journey home. And then when he, he's far, when, while he's still far away, we, we know the story, the father runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, and takes him home, has compassion on him. And then he speaks what he's rehearsed. And then the son said to him, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants. You see, he ends up saying only two things. I have sinned 
I am no longer worthy. Even before you can ask for mercy, God is ready and willing to show you mercy. Before he could ask for mercy, the father said, quick to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. The three things that the father asks for total restoration of his son, the best robe, mark the word, the best robe, it wasn't the second best robe, there was the elder son who had the inheritance, who had the birthright. The father said, bring out the best robe, put it on him. Forgiveness would be empty without restoration. It's not enough to just forgive. God doesn't say, I forgive you. He restores us. Therefore, if you bear the name of son or daughter, having received Jesus as Lord through the Holy Spirit, you have found favor with God. The best robe has been placed on you. It demonstrates the Father's complete acceptance and approval of His love and protection upon you. A ring has been put on your fingers, representing the riches you have in Christ the authority that you have as his son. Sandals have been put on your feet, affirming the sonship that you have in total restoration, with all of its benefits, not limited to just healing, loving kindness, tender mercies and compassion. Every good thing. Now the story doesn't end there. We've seen the destiny of the younger son his demand, his downfall and his destiny. And then there's the dichotomy, the contrast between the younger son and the older son. What, what about the older son? He was all good, wasn't he? He didn't ask for his share of property. He stayed in the house. He kept all his father's commands. But let's look what it says. Verse 25 to 28. Now his older son was in the field and as he came, and drew near, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. There's a lot of dichotomy in, in the older son's behavior. When he heard that his brother had returned, he was angry and would not go in. The younger son had repented and had returned. The older one refused to go into the house. And you see the father came out and pleaded with him. The father still had the heart, the compassion for his older son. The older son was full of self-righteousness. I have never transgressed, he said. I have kept all your commandments. But look at his self-worth. He says, 
I have been, Lord, these many years, I have been serving you. He sees himself as a servant, even though he was the son. And he feels he's entitled, yet you never gave me a young goat. He feels entitled to all the father's possessions. There's no humility. His sins are subtle. All the while, the same selfish desire within him rages on. He is awaiting his time to take hold and grasp what is his. He is like the younger brother on the inside. On the outside, he is good and obedient, but on the inside, he still wants the same things. It is what he deserves and therefore others cannot have. His obedience was merely a gateway to the father's riches, to the father's property. It wasn't the pathway to the father's heart. He wanted what's in the father's hand, a gateway to what is in his father's hand. He didn't want what is in his father's heart. He was playing a game we all play many times. We fall in line doing what we have to, doing what we must, paying our tithes, our offerings, doing what we must, until the time comes at which we can grasp what we want, what we've always wanted. We do not do it for the joy of serving the Father or doing it for the Father. We do it for the joy that will come when the Father hands us his stuff. Neither son loved the Father. Both were using the father for their own self-centered ends. This means you can rebel against God and be alienated from him. Either by breaking his rules, his commandments, or by keeping all of them diligently. Careful obedience to God's law can become a strategy for rebelling against God. In other words, it is possible to serve others, even God, while actually serving yourselves. Let's compare the younger son and the older son. The younger son started with, Father, give me his demand. He ended with, Father, make me total surrender. The older son says, you never gave me The son always addresses his father as father. Father, give me. Father, make me. Father, I have sinned. But look at the older son. He says, look, these many years, he doesn't even address him as father. Lo, these many years I have served you and you never gave me a young goat. The younger son says, I have sinned. I admit my wrongdoing. I'm not worthy. The older son says, I have never transgressed. Are we like the older son sometimes? I have kept all your commandments. The younger son, son took his share, left the house, but returned. The older son stayed, but never entered. Who is really the prodigal? We, we often refer to this as the prodigal son. Who is really the prodigal? Some say the prodigal is the father. 
extravagant love, a lot of compassion for both the younger son and the older son. When the older son refused to enter, the father went out and pleaded with him. I often wonder why did the father not go to find his younger son? We see in the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd goes out and brings, out, brings in the sheep. The lost coin, the woman goes and searches for the coin. The younger son leaves the house. There's no, no one goes to find him. Who should have gone? The elder son should have gone for his brother. But he didn't. What do we learn from these three stories? The lost is always sought out. We have responsibilities as God's servants to seek the lost, to carry out God's mission on this earth. The sheep wandered out away out of its ignorance. The coin was lost out of negligence. Are we sometimes negligent of what has been entrusted to us? Are we ignorant of God's grace and compassion and live and wander off? The younger son was lost out of arrogance. He was full of himself. He wanted what he wanted. The older son was lost out of indignance. He was indifferent. The younger son repented and was restored. What about the older son? Doesn't say. Look at the people in the story. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. Would you stand out and resent your younger brother returning, even the tax collectors and the sinners repenting and coming back? Would you not enter? These three parables show God, one overarching truth, that God loves sinners. And because he loves he sends his son into the world to seek and to find the lost. And we also see that without God's initiating love, we will never have hope. We will never have salvation on our own. Jesus is the true shepherd looking, after, looking out for the lost sheep. He is the woman sweeping the house to find the lost coin. He is the true older brother who goes and looks for the prodigal. Just as the father commanded his servants to put on the robe, the ring, and the sandals, we are commanded as his servants to seek the lost, to extend God's compassion to those who are lost. We are commanded to model his heart and his mission to restore the lost sons of this world. But there's a question we still have to ask ourselves. Where are you this morning? Where do you find yourself? Or do you find yourself one step at a time, having wandered off? Let us examine our hearts today in the light of his word. There is always hope. God has compassion. He is more than able to bring back what is lost. The lowest of the lows, the highest self-righteousness that we might have sometimes.
and he is, his arms are still wide with compassion, ready to receive us, to show us compassion, to restore us, not just to forgive us, to restore us. So let's examine our hearts this morning.